In early 2016, the United States, along with 11 other Pacific Rim nations, signed a massive trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. Negotiations took six years. They were led by the United States under the Obama administration, which saw TPP as the cornerstone of its economic policy in the Asia-Pacific region. The administration and many economists at the time argued that TPP would spur economic growth and job growth in the United States. After all, it was set to be the largest free trade deal. The deal was also seen as a way to cement the United States' leadership role in the Asia-Pacific region. But notably, it didn't include the largest economy in Asia, China. At the time, TPP countries argued that China simply wouldn't be able to meet its stringent requirements for liberalizing trade, for labor, and for the environment. But they said that there was room for the bloc to grow in the future. Despite the United States spearheading and signing the deal, TPP faced pushback in Congress from both parties. When the 2016 election came around, both candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, opposed TPP. After winning the election and on his first day in office, President Donald Trump officially pulled the United States out of the TPP. In the end, the remaining 11 countries decided to go through with the deal, and it morphed into what we now call the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, or CPTPP. The deal was thrust back into the spotlight in September of this year, when China requested to join. To learn more about what China's official bid means for the future of the CPTPP, the Asia-Pacific, for China, and for the United States, I spoke with an expert on free trade agreements. Uh, Jeffrey Schott, I'm a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Aaron Slauson, and this is the China Business Review. What was your initial reaction when China first announced that it had applied to join the deal? Did it come as a surprise to anyone? Not at all. Uh, China's been studying the TPP text uh, since before the, the agreement was signed in February of 2016. And uh, even after uh, President Trump withdrew the United States from the deal and the deal was reconstituted among the 11 uh, remaining countries, uh, Chinese officials and scholars were studying the text and uh, basically analyzing uh, how their policies, their laws and regulations uh, lined up against the CPTPP requirements. And one other, one other factor, which shouldn't go unnoticed to any China watcher, uh, President Xi Jinping has been noting on numerous occasions in his speeches over the past two years how China was giving serious consideration uh, to joining the CPTPP. Uh, when Xi Jinping says something uh, uh, in China, lots of people jump and start studying and acting on it. So the next question then is, why now? Well, it's this is pure speculation uh, because uh, I, I have not been in Beijing for uh, two years now. And uh, the uh, situation obviously depends a lot on both domestic politics and international strategy of the Chinese regime. I suspect, however, that uh, the Chinese feel that they have made some progress in some areas. Uh, with the new foreign investment law, with the strengthening of enforcement of intellectual property rights in new 
uh, IP courts, uh, and that that has brought them closer to uh, TPP standards. They also recognize that the United States continues to sit on the fence. The White House is uh, at least uh, had been uh, unwilling to consider rejoining the uh, the CPTPP uh, in the near term until domestic uh, reforms had been instituted, and so their focus was on getting the domestic economic agenda through Congress, not on starting new international trade negotiations. And third, and maybe the decisive factor, though this is hard to determine, uh, the Japanese government has been pushing very hard in, uh, in the last few months uh, for Taiwan to apply for membership. And that may have been the straw that broke the camel's back and led the Chinese to take what one could consider preemptive action to ensure that uh, they, they were in a position to block in, in one way or another, uh, Taiwan's entry into the TPP. Well, when it was first announced, I remember several observers saying that, you know, this is just for optics and this shouldn't be taken seriously. And it sounds like you, you wouldn't fully agree with that statement. Well, everything is politics in China, uh, but it, it, they also are, are interested in economic development. And so if you look back at the studies that were done a few years ago about what would happen if, if China joined the uh, TPP or the CPTPP, the clear conclusion was China would be the big winner because it would get access to a much bigger integrated market and it, uh, its gains would be valued once all the reforms were fully implemented in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So uh, China would be the big winner in terms of real income gains uh, from, from joining uh, the PAC, just as it, it is the big winner in joining the uh, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. But by one, one, one point, you have to add one important caveat. All of those uh, uh, calculations assume that China will pretty closely meet all of the TPP requirements. So that assumes a significant level of economic reform in China, either right at the point of, uh, at, uh, point of entry uh, or by the time the deal is, is uh, fully consummated after fully implemented over over a decade or so. Uh, so within a decade, there'd have to be very tremendous changes in access to the Chinese market, transparency of Chinese policies, and uh, uh, reforms of uh, regulatory measures. You mentioned a couple things there. One, that if China were to join the trade pact, it would be the big winner. But CPTPP is young, and it hasn't been fully implemented. So what do we know at this point about how trade flows have shifted since the majority of the original countries have signed and ratified CPTPP? Uh, I'd say anyone who, who makes that type of calculation is basically dealing with a situation that is, doesn't provide much information. First of all, only seven of the 11 countries have ratified the agreement. Uh, or eight now, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Peru uh, ratified uh, earlier this summer. Uh, so the deal wasn't even in force for, for those countries. 
second, you've had the extraordinary situation during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, that has disrupted supply chains and uh, made, it, made it very difficult to uh, reap the benefits of the agreement. So you mentioned China and Taiwan, but there are also other applicants. What does that process look like for countries reviewing applications? Does it happen on a rolling basis? Is it a give priority to your friends and allies type of deal? There has to be unanimous consent, but how is consent actually reached? It's, uh, it's going to be a slow and laborious process. Uh, there, there are are, are many steps in the in the process. It's very akin to what is done in the WTO. Uh, any member of the CPTPP can basically veto the membership of a new new applicant. Now, in the case of of China, almost all the countries have very strong trade and investment relationships with China. Uh, less so for Canada and Mexico and Brunei, but the others are all strongly tied to commercially with, uh, to China. And so you don't want to say no, but uh, it may be very difficult to say yes if China can't meet the objective requirements. And so how could this play out? There could be a, an extensive process in which China negotiates with the uh, member countries, seeks to find a way to either negotiate longer transition periods to give it time to, uh, to bring its practices and laws into conformity with the CPTPP, or it could seek to negotiate some partial exemptions in some areas, say, well, we're going to do 90% or 80% of the requirements, but with regard to labor obligations, with regard to data privacy and access to data, transporter data flows, uh, with support for state-owned enterprises, I'm sorry, we're going to have to be given a pass. Now, what do you do if you're uh, an important trading partner and want to stay in, in good graces with, uh, with, with China? Uh, I think those countries are, are going to do what is normally done in Asia in international negotiations, and that is they're going to talk, and they're going to talk, and they're going to talk, and they're going to look forward to agreement, and it's going to be maybe next year, maybe next year, and it's going to carry on for some time and see how things develop, either reforms move forward in China to narrow the gap between Chinese practice and TPP requirements, or uh, other countries join in the interim. The United Kingdom is or, uh, just started uh, about a week ago negotiating. Uh, up until then, they did not have uh, the, the CPTPP members did not form a, an accession working group to negotiate with uh, the UK. So that only happened uh, in the last week or two. Uh, so you can imagine there's been a long time since, uh, since the UK application to join at the beginning of this year to the start of the actual negotiations. And who knows how long those negotiations will last, even with the UK, because there are sensitive areas in agriculture and elsewhere that are going to cause problems for one or several uh, CPTPP members. So for China... The process is going to be probably as least as, as long to get to the starting line. And then the number of complications will be much, much greater. Uh, so this is probably something that will carry on for some time. There will have to be an, an, an agreement. All the countries will negotiate together 
Some may also negotiate bilaterally in parallel uh, on market access problems that they might have on specific market access deals. Uh, but at the end of the day, all have to grant their approval. And of course, the number of countries that grant their approval depends on who has gotten into the agreement before China gets into the agreement. Right. And who ratifies it and, and, and possible uh, new uh, aspirants, uh, new members like the United Kingdom might, might get in before China and then the United Kingdom would have a veto over China as, as well. Now, that's what makes the uh, application of Taiwan interesting and difficult. They are probably closer to meeting CPTPP standards than uh, uh, Beijing. Of course, the, uh, the Chinese government will not look kindly if Taiwan leapfrogs them in the process. And uh, so that adds a, a, a complication. It also complicates the, uh, the calculations of other countries that may be considering applying for membership in the CPTPP, including South Korea, which uh, 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 the, the new South Korean trade minister uh, told me that they have fulfill, finished virtually all the technical requirements for sending in an application. Uh, but they have a few political issues yet to resolve in Korean politics, uh, probably relating to Korean-Japanese relations that, that are, need to be worked out before, uh, before they can apply themselves for membership. And there's one other country that, uh, uh, where, where talk of CPTPP has, uh, ha- has continued quite extensively over the past few years, including in the U.S. Congress. Uh, and, and so... What the United States now does is uh, much more complicated. So when it comes to some of these parts of CPTPP, data policy, market access, labor standards, state-owned enterprises, how big is the gap between Chinese trade practices and CPTPP standards? Those are areas where the rulemaking, the gap in the rulemaking is very large and probably unbridgeable in, in, in the near future. Uh, certainly on, 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 on labor obligations, uh, on, on data issues, some of the information revisions to Chinese information law uh, are moving away from CPTPP standards. Uh, and in support for state-owned enterprises, that's a huge issue uh, if you tackle it from the, from the perspective of trying to have general rules applying to all state-owned enterprises and, and even defining how, how to define what a state-owned enterprise is and whether you cover just the, the national enterprises or, or, or local ones, the ownership requirements, what is a public body is being debated still in, in, uh, in, the, in, in jurisprudence in the WTO. So these types of issues uh, are, are, are really problematic for Chinese uh, uh, session. Unless there is a political uh, compromise made to grant full or partial exemptions or to grant a, a long transition period. Uh, in the area of, 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 of commercial relations, there's not a great deal of, of, of credibility in saying, oh, I will change my policies in 10 or 15 years. It's not like in climate change 
where countries are making commitments on where they will be in 2050. Uh, businesses are not going to invest on improved access or, or uh, trade liberalization or investment reforms 15 or 20 years down the road. Uh, they want to see something a little, little more concrete. And uh, so how that will work out and whether uh, that the Chinese government will put more pressure on some of the CPTPP members to, uh, to provide that, that flexibility to get in the door, I think is, uh, is an open question. Now, I think many of the CPTPP countries would be reluctant to do that unless the United States was also coming in at the same time, because uh, they would want the United States in the club for, for a variety of reasons. And, and that's another variable that complicates uh, U.S. strategic thinking now about CPTPP. Uh, it would have been so much easier and the U.S. government would have been in such a more favorable position if they had acted sooner. On Monday, October 4th, Ambassador Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative, was asked about CPTPP and whether the United States was considering trying to rejoin the pact. In response, she said that the original deal was negotiated a long time ago and that in the intervening years, we've come to realize new realities, suggesting that, no, there won't be an effort in the near term. But if that were to change, if the United States were to explore renegotiating parts of the deal, how would that coincide with other economies' applications to join CPTPP as it is today? Well, uh, unfortunately, I don't think the U.S. government has done enough Homework, uh, enough homework on this. And, and part of it is political perception, which in Congress is reality. Here, here's the situation. When the U.S. pulled out, there were a number of provisions in the TPP that were included, even though the Democrats didn't like them, even though President Obama didn't like them. He included them because he felt he needed them to ensure support by Republicans in the Congress. And he was going to need a, uh, a majority of Republicans to carry, carry through uh, ratification. In the event, there wasn't enough support so that the deal was never presented formally to the Congress for a vote. And when the United States pulled out, the provisions that we insisted on that the others didn't want were essentially dropped out of the deal. And that includes some of the uh, patent provisions on biologics uh, aspects of the investor state dispute settlement, things that, that pro the progressive wing of the Democrats objected to the most, uh, they, uh, they said the, the TPP was unacceptable because of that. Now, there are other reasons why Democrats criticized the deal. And uh, they were concerned that there wasn't, in the TPP or any other U.S. trade agreement, effective enforcement of labor and environmental obligations. And so in the USMCA, they developed a new rapid response mechanism to investigate and enforce labor obligations. Uh, and Catherine Tai was uh, uh, importantly involved in the development of those procedures. And so I suspect that part of her concern in saying this was an old agreement is that it didn't deal with the worker-centric priorities that uh, she has been espousing since she took office. It's a little different to talk about worker-centric priorities in the North American context when we have an integrated market 
and we have substantial uh, labor flows. Uh, and to talk about worker what worker-centric means when you're dealing with 10 or 11 or 12 other countries, many uh, across the ocean, different types of societies, that may need to be worked out. So in the, in the best of all possible worlds, I think she would want to negotiate if she had the ability to, the political authority to negotiate, she would want a new agreement that looked more like the USMCA that includes upgrades from some of the, some of the, uh, uh, some of the things that she worked on. Now, the NAFTA was uh, disparaged for many, many years in Congress. Uh, and it turns out that what was mostly wrong with the NAFTA was its name. And uh, when the USMCA replaced it, the new agreement was st still contained a lot of the old NAFTA. Uh, and then most of the rest was TPP. Uh, and a couple of uh, chapters like in environment uh, and data, uh, digital trade, there were upgrades on the TPP text that were put into the uh, the. Uh, uh, USMCA, and, and and then the specific provisions on auto rules and origin and the labor, uh, basically made it a different deal or something that could be sold differently to political constituencies in the United States. That's going to be difficult to replicate in its entirety in uh, in Asia, uh, and now when we could have done more to upgrade the TPP from 2016 to 2021. Now we're in a, a difficult position because with three, three uh, economies already uh, asking to join the CPTPP, we can't come in and say, no, that the agreement has to be changed and the goalposts move for everybody who's in the middle of the process. So we put ourselves in a very awkward position. And uh, I think what that means is it, it, it makes it more difficult for the U.S. to achieve the types of things that uh, Ambassador Tai uh, has wanted to, to work on. And that only further complicates how, how we end up addressing this because China, uh, China is in the process of negotiating or in the process of going, uh, going through the procedures to begin negotiations of membership. So last question, in your view, what would be the best outcome? Well, because there are so many political uh, priorities involved, it's not just a commercial issue. So what is best case in terms of economic welfare uh, would, would, uh, would be China meeting the terms of the CPTPP. But that ain't going to happen anytime soon. And there is the danger that impasse on the commercial negotiations complicates other considerations in the region with regard to political and strategic relations. The stability of, of the Asia-Pacific region really depends on an accommodation of some of the uh, concerns that have developed over the last few years in U.S.-China relations so that we avoid a harsher decoupling of our two economies, which would be have negative effects for both our countries, but also for uh, all our trading partners in the region. And probably the poorer countries will suffer the most. We have to avoid this spilling over, uh, particularly if it infects the financial system. 
Because once we get there, then you, you could see a rapid decoupling of the two economies and really a fissure uh, that has, has very strong negative implications uh, for both sides. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council. You can learn more about what we do at uschina.org. Our music is by Tours. If you liked the episode, be sure to leave us a rating and review so that other people can find us, and we will be back soon.